Welcome to The Inner Circle, the podcast bringing you into honest conversations about climate action. Together, we'll talk to business owners, experts, activists, and others who are working on circular economy initiatives on the ground. We'll uncover what we're doing right, where people are going wrong, and what needs to be done to change the system to value people and the planet. Together, we're making the impossible possible. Hey there, welcome back to The Inner Circle. My name is Erin Andrews. I'm your host as always, and I am the founder and executive director of the Impact Zero Foundation, which is the organization bringing you this podcast. So thanks for stopping by again this week. Um, First of all, before we get into anything, I want to check in and know how you're doing because we've had some really beautiful weather in Toronto the last, I would say, week or so. Um, and while this is very exciting, we also might recognize that it is early to mid-November, which is an insane time to be having 20 degree temperatures in uh, for a significant amount of time, actually. It's almost been a week, I think, or it was it was going on for almost a week. Um And I've been having a lot of conversations with people who are like, this is great, but man, is this really what climate change is going to be? And I don't know what to say to those people because this has always been a problem. This is always a thing, but it's just been in our face for the the, uh, last week. So um, I don't know if you've been experiencing similar conversations, but it's like, it's kind of good, I guess, for people to be recognizing this, but It's also frustrating that people only recognize it when it's like in their face because we know that people in other places on the planet um, have been displaced from their homes because they can no longer live in the temperatures that they're experiencing, which is very real. More people have been displaced due to climate change than any political or like violent reasons. Um, So to the people who maybe don't recognize that this is a very bad thing, um, or maybe only pay attention when it's really obvious in our faces, I want to say thank you, but also maybe you should do some more research. And I think you guys all feel the same. Um, So if you're feeling like you're the only one in your circle that is feeling this way, or if you're feeling an increased level of eco-anxiety, which is real, um, seriously, like feel free to message us. Like DM me on Insta, because if you go on our our Instagram at impactzero.ca, it's going to be me on the other end. So DM me. Um, Let's talk about this. Let's kind of like form a community and all, I don't know, comfort each other because what else are we going to do? If you listen to the episode with Sophie, the zero waste living episode, um, you know that community is one of the biggest things that can help you on this journey. So don't hesitate to message for real because like this stuff is pretty heavy and um, it, we already have, we deal with so much already. Th- so many things are going on in the world that um, we just don't need more. And all, at the same time, don't let this stop you from actually enjoying this nice weather, like as it feels kind of weird to say, but we have a couple extra days of sunniness, a couple days of warm weather. Um, sit outside take it all in because the next couple months when we get into the winter, we all know it's Canadian winter. It's going to suck a little bit. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to check in on everyone because while it's been nice, it's also maybe been a lot to deal with when you're already so focused on the climate crisis. Um, On a little bit of a happier note, I wanted to kind of reemphasize something that I shared last week about um, EcoFair at the Barns. So we did our finale, um, I guess, event um, on Sunday. Usually the EcoFair is something that happens at Witchwood Barns on St. Clair West um, in November. It's usually just one day, but this uh, this year they did like a four-week thing which was very intense, um, but but really great for the organizers. Like, I really applaud them because that was a lot of work. Um, but on the Sunday finale, I moderated a panel of five local businesses. There were two other panels, so a total of three panels. And we had some really great conversations, tips, um, 
and some good kind of takeaways from from that event. So if you would like to watch the replay, it is available on YouTube and I'll I'll link it in the description or in the show notes. Um, and something else that was cool is that we had Diane Sachs join us and she did a little presentation literally while the weather was like 20 something degrees. Um, and she shares kind of this, um, it's good, but bad mentality, obviously. Um, and it's great to hear from her. So if that's something you're interested in, uh, check it out after, after you finish listening to this episode, cause we got some great stuff coming. Um, something else I wanted to promote is our Circular Economy 101 webinar that's happening on November 23rd, which is a Monday at 2 p.m. So it'll be an hour, maybe a little bit more than an hour. Um, but this is kind of a classic webinar that I deliver to people who want to really understand more about the circular economy. Um, obviously, if you listen to our first episode, you got a high-level overview. But in this one, we talk a lot about incentive structures and um, examples of like why it's good, why the circular economy is good, why linear economy is bad, and also I go through some more examples about like what the circular economy is going to look like, who's already doing it. And we map it against the Ellen MacArthur Circular Economy Butterfly Diagram, which is something that you have to see. You cannot just talk about that. If you've, if you've already seen it, you know it's quite complex. Um, but it's a really cool diagram um, to kind of visualize a circular economy. So if you want to get a sense of what that is like, you can join us on the 23rd. Um, I do want to let you know it's not a free webinar. We do a lot of free webinars, but this one... Um, it is one that we do charge a pay what you can fee for. So it's between five and $30, whatever you feel comfortable with, um, just to help with expenses of the organization. Right now, um, I pay for everything by myself. <laughs> and, um, while like I'm very happy to do it, it is, um, increasingly harder to do because I am a full-time, like, ED of the foundation. Um, so our revenue streams are limited at the moment. Um, so any support that you could give really does help. Um, it helps to keep the foundation alive. Um, I don't pay myself out of anything at the moment. Um, right now, it's all just going towards covering the operational costs of the foundation, which we have a couple hundred of those every month. So um, yeah, if you can join, that would be really awesome. I'd love to see you there. Um, and then the last thing, of course, is if you know of any business members who would be good members for, or sorry, businesses who would be good members for the network, um, let them know about what we do. Like we have a whole thing where we um, support uh, businesses through facilitating collaborations. We have a bunch of workshops um, and we have networking events as well. So then people in the circular economy in Canada can all kind of connect and know who's who because if you know um, that circular economy is going to take a village, we are trying to build, build that village. So if you know of anyone, just uh, send them our way and uh, let them know they can also book time with me. They can DM us um, because, again, it's just going to be me on the other end. Um, and we can hopefully start to build that network even bigger so we can make a bigger collective impact. Um, so that's everything I wanted to share before we get into this. So now I would like to introduce you to Juan David Viegas. He actually recently came to Canada from Colombia and he has a PhD in environmental science. Uh, he is a life cycle assessment expert. Like he has done so many projects all around the globe. Um, and what I think is really interesting about his work is that typical life cycle assessments um, evaluate the environmental impacts of a product or service. So like say if you want to know is glass or is paper worse, a life cycle assessment would answer that question. Um, but with his work, which I think is really amazing, is that he takes a life cycle assessment and he also puts a social lens on it. So not only is, does he want to know the carbon, the water, the resource um, requirements for each of those, um, and then again, if it's like a circular thing, keeping in mind the processes that, are, that come with that to kind of map out the entire life cycle of that product. But 
he takes the social lens to say, okay, who else is impacted? What communities are impacted? How are they impacted? Is it positive? Is it negative? Because then that brings up a lot of questions that if you have um, a process that is maybe environmentally bad, but it's socially better for the community, like it creates jobs, um, it creates higher paying jobs, and that creates a whole other slew of questions that you would have missed if you had just been focused on the environmental life cycle assessment. Um, So his work is very fascinating. He's a very smart person, obviously. Um, So I'm really excited to jump into this interview with him. So without further ado, this is Juan David Villegas. First, let's get started. Let's jump right into the content uh, because I know you have a ton of experience working in a lot of different areas in sustainability, including life cycle assessments, green energy, waste management, the list goes on. Um, So first, I would just like to have you introduce yourself to the listeners, tell us about everything that you've studied and the work that you've done in the sustainability space. Uh, okay, thank you for having me, Erin. It's a pleasure to be with you here. It's my first time doing a podcast in English, so let's be patient. <laughs> and, okay, I'm a, at the base, I'm a chemical engineer. I became an environmental engineer by practice. You know, I, my first job was in a university, working with constructed wetlands and communities and waste water management. Then I uh, received a, a scholarship to go to Switzerland. Uh, and then I worked in a project there, also working in wastewater management, uh, more from the point of view of an environmental engineer. But then I, I, I always did also to, be, to see the things uh, more high level, you know? Uh, so I always interested in the social and economic aspects of the thing. So when I see that there was an opportunity to do a PhD in a life cycle assessment and biorefineries, I jumped uh, right in the middle, you know. And, <laughs> and it was also waste, uh, waste management because it was a, a biorefineries as a way to manage and to valorize agricultural waste. You know, there are so many... Uh, so many points of view, so many ways to make the process better. So I I, I felt in love with the study. And then uh, what I learned from my PhD was that, was that uh, life cycle thinking, that circular thinking, that high level thinking that I applied to then in many other industries and, and sectors, you know, like uh, the fashion industry, the textile industry, the, the oil and gas industry, the construction. Industry right now is a big, big trend to be circular and to be uh, life cycle thinking in uh, in the way we uh, do our buildings and our habitat. Um, and that's in a nutshell my my career. Mm-hmm. No, that's so diverse and it's so interesting. All of the things that you talked about, like the way that. Um, the the engineering turned into kind of the environmental spin and then you kind of realize all of these bigger problems every single time. Um, that's actually, that's pretty similar to, to my pathway. I kind of started with um, my realization in plastics and then I've kind of like zoomed out almost into the systemic issues um, around like how things work versus just focusing on the end products. Um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting. Out of all these things that you've worked on though, um, would you be able to choose a favorite? Do you have a favorite either project or study that you did? Um, and maybe explain a little bit about why it would be one of your favorites. Uh, in fact, uh, I, um, I'm kind of in love with a project, but, uh, it was like a pro bono project that I did. Um, mm-hmm. And it was uh, kind of thinking out of the box and out of my engineering training. It was like applying life cycle thinking to social issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, my uh, wife, uh, she she's very passionate. You know, she's very trendy and like uh, passion, and she was very interested also in uh, the aspects of uh, sustainable fashion. And then I, I said, okay, that's, that's interesting. Let, let me, uh, show me more about, 
even had a block. Uh, it was called the Conscious Specialist. Uh, and then uh, to their contact, to her contact, I, I uh, managed to find this NGO in a, in US that was working with artisans in Peru. Uh, and they were giving them uh, education. The all it started like an educational NGO. And then they uh, they look at the talent of the team there, and they start to give them a, a better a work environment, uh, pay them better for their job, like uh, making a, a brand uh, of the products and selling to the U.S. market, so they were better paid. They were receiving the full of the work produce uh, uh, as a as a benefit, you know, as a profit for for their work. So it was it was nice, uh, and then I went to visit, profiting a a personal trip to Peru, and they started to study about social life cycle assessment, and it was uh, a cool thing to 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 see, even if it's imperfect, this is when if from my engineering point of view, it's a little fuzzy, a little mm-hmm. or, or certain, it's, it's the is the right thing to do. So I I did a a social life cycle study with them. I visited them. You know, I went to one of the centers. I went to the market, you know, in a zone of Peru uh, to buy the product to see how she managed to hustle for for the price of the of the fabric, to see their uh, providers, to see their links. Uh, it, it was it was really nice uh, work, and I present them and I present the work. In a conference of social LCA in Pescara, in Italy, and it was nice. I, I was very thrilled and passionate about this project, and then it was not possible to get additional funding for the project, and, and it was, and I was caught in other projects. You, you don't have the time to do <laughs> all the things you want to do, but I love the uh, every step of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Having the like the social aspect included in the life cycle assessment, to me, that's really fascinating because everything that I've read about has only ever focused on um, like the environmental impact on like the actual natural spaces around. Like it'll have some aspects of impacting communities, but this is a question that I've actually brought up as well with um, the people that I work with to have like a heavier emphasis on the social side of that. So did you think that including kind of like the social considerations in your project in Peru, um, did you think that that really enhanced it or do you do that all the time? Like, um, is that something that people typically do or did you kind of intentionally put that lens on the assessment? Uh, uh, I intentionally put that. It's like uh, right now in the big companies, they are starting to have a, you know, they're obligated by laws to do better in terms of emissions, in terms of uh, CO2 reduction, emission reduction. But the social part is still like fuzzy because uh, everybody is quiet about it because it's in the best interest of all business farmers to get profit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that profit is made on the back of the workers. Yes. You know? so, um, uh, so it's very difficult to make a real conscience uh, of this. Uh, and sometimes it's very difficult. For example, um, in the cane industry in Colombia, for example, uh, it would be better, you know, economically and uh, environmentally to do the harvest to mechanical harvesting, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have beans, uh, it will be faster, there would be no uh, emissions for cane burning, you know, but uh, it's kind of entrenched in the culture of the sun, you know, there's a high, high unemployment in Colombia, and right now because of COVID, work. So uh, cane cutting is the only opportunity for many, many people. Uh, so if uh, you don't have this sort of uh, employment in the region, there will be really, really a big socialism. So uh, in that case, the, the companies are, are, you know, are kind of obliged to do that because uh, they cannot afford 
social unrest, but it, but they profit also because they pay them very very low wages. Uh, and it's a change, it's, it's a conundrum uh, that is so difficult to solve uh, in many many industries. Uh, you have okay, but they are at least giving me an employment. Mm-hmm. But what kind of employment they are giving you? So I, I think the point of view of the consumer will be very important to that. So in that sense, uh, for example, in US, you receive or in Canada, uh, you receive a final product. Uh, a nice shirt, a nice, uh, a nice, uh, clothing product. And if you know that it's made by almost slave work, you will mm-hmm. not buy it, you know, you will be bad about it. Uh, or you will pay more for a product that you know that it's made, uh, that it's paying fair wages to the, to the, all of the chain. Because you say, okay, uh, like with the Simpsons case in the interview. Okay, we are paying nice. To the seamstress, they are well educated, they are receiving more than the average wage, uh, they're well treated, they feel important, they learn, they have opportunity for the kids, but the change is very long, you know, you, you buy the party. And where do you get the party? From China. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or from, even from Peru. Pima cotton is a very good product, but mm-hmm. in the songs that they are produced, they are uh, uh, very bad conditions of work, you know. So, or you could say, okay, I will buy it from USA cotton. Okay, USA cotton will be better, uh, probably expensive, but the, the workers are a little more protection than in China or in Peru, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of thing. Uh, but you are removing the work source from this country that needs so, 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 in the end, it's very difficult to solve without systemic change. Okay, uh, consumers can can have a say in that, but also voters, also uh, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, also uh, communities. Uh, you need to get more organized. Uh, so, in the end, we need better indicators to to say to these actors. Uh, okay, we are doing the things well. Uh, give me a bonus for that. But in the end, uh, it's a systemic solution that we need. We all, uh, consumer information is a very important part of it, but there are other things that uh, need to change. Yeah, well, that that's kind of um, what the Impact Zero Foundation is trying to help do because when we talk about like that system change and is it the consumer who will change it? Is it going to be the businesses that will change first? It's basically like a game of chicken, right? It's like you're all sitting there waiting for someone to make the first move in, in changing everything. Um, but it's hard because when you look at everyone's perspectives, like when I talk to consumers about this, because I've talked to a lot of kind of like independent people who care, but like they don't have a business per se. um, A lot of them tell me, at least in Canada, they're saying things like, oh, well, it's either really expensive for us or um, like if I want to make a sustainable decision or they'll say something like the businesses um, aren't doing it and it's their responsibility. And then when you go and talk to the businesses, then their perspective is, okay, well, it's expensive for us to do this and we don't know if the consumers are actually going to purchase our products at a higher price. And then you go to the government and they're pointing at all these other people too. Like everyone seems to be pointing at each other to be the problem. (laughs) And um, it seems like, I'm not, I'm not totally certain. Like the way that I look at it, I think that, um, the companies are going to be the ones that are going to have to change. And as you mentioned, like entrepreneurs are probably going to be the ones to disrupt and then other companies will kind of follow suit later on. Um, yeah. So I, am just curious to get your perspective on that. Like in that game of chicken, like who do you think is going to move first or, or what do you think needs to happen to kind of start pushing that, um, that system system change? Like, would you say it's the entrepreneurs as well? Yeah, I, I would say that. Uh, I, I think uh, if, uh, in every aspect of your life as a private person, you, you must have to change by consuming better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you work, you, if you are an entrepreneur, you are a professional, you must also try to disrupt. Uh, and as a citizen, uh, you must vote 
for the people that uh, will have uh, a government vision that will be encouraging, you know, all this systemic change. So uh, I think it's a multi basis uh, I don't know if it's the word, solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, in every aspect of your individual life, you have to try to make a change. And mm. if you do that, only others will follow. Uh, but uh, definitely, entrepreneurs are are very important to that because if you make a process that is profitable, that uh, doesn't uh, that is circular, and that are also a, or even if it is a traditional uh, process, but you made in that way that. Uh, you pay fairly uh, mm-hmm. to your work. You are also encouraging change. So yeah, entrepreneurs are very, very important in that situation. Mm-hmm. And also on that note of like paying people fairly, even if you take the traditional route of producing something, um, how much of a role do you think that has to play in um, in creating a more sustainable future? Like, do you see the social change going hand in hand with the environmental changes in terms of improving that? Like, do you think it needs to be like everyone comes on this road together, therefore we can all be sustainable? Or do you think that there needs to be an emphasis on one or the other? Like, what's your perspective on that? I don't think that, I think there, there's a lot of, uh, as I think I mentioned you in the, in the case of the sugar cane. But there are a lot of cases like that. Uh, but in the end, it doesn't uh, need to be that way. Uh, for example, the, the Green Deal that some politicians are uh, uh, promoting in the U.S., I think is the way to go. Because mm-hmm. you are uh, kind of uh, using a Keynesian approach to the economy, uh, encouraging the economy by, by getting a lot of money in enterprises that do nothing well, in, uh, in conservation, conservation jobs. So you have people, uh, you offer a lot of green jobs, uh, many of them subsidized by the state. And uh, that thing, I think it's a good, good solution. The problem is, is that it needs to be global. If you do it locally, probably it will not be as impactful as uh, it should be. Because uh, uh, inevitably, we are confronted to a globalized economy, so the <laughs> distribution chains are, are very complex and very global. So you need global accords also to do like a global green deal. And these two things, the social and the environmental, I think they are very correlated in a good way because uh, nature is sage, you know, and if you if you manage to do our political and our economical system more ecological, yeah, in which everybody is employed, in which uh, everybody has a meaningful life, everybody has a, a free time to consume and to continue to inform themselves in a meaningful way, so you will have a better society. So these things uh, are not uh, exclusive at all. Right. And even if you have people that are, for example, having free time, living a good life, then they're able to participate in a lot more different types of things apart from just making money to to actually survive. Like they're actually going to be able to volunteer for organizations and help like plant trees if that's your thing. (laughs) We need more people. Not every voter is a citizen in this mm. moment because they don't have time to be a citizen. They are just too exhausted both at the other terms and to participate in community life, you know. So that is important. If you if you give people a, a meaningful life, they will be better persons. And if you are a better person, you will be more conscious of your environment and the beautiful uh, planet that we are living in. And I think there is there are a lot of evidence of that. Yeah. Definitely. And I've also um, recently seen like there's a lot of conversation going on in Canada and probably the US as well, how um, like capitalist societies are essentially there to like distract individuals from what's really going on. So like has how you mentioned, like if everyone has a good life and they're able to like do whatever they want, they can at least they can enjoy the planet. They'll have more respect for it because they're not going to be kind of distracted in this silo of just 
just like living and just being able to make it. So talking about like more in, in depth into the life cycle assessment stuff, because obviously you, you brought a social lens into it. What do you think the impact of doing life cycle assessments for companies are? So for the listeners who may not be aware, life cycle assessments essentially map out the process and the environmental and in your case, also social um, impacts of producing a certain product or providing a certain service. Based on the work that you did with various companies on this, did you see any action being taken once they were informed about the impacts of their products and services? Like, how, how do you think life cycle assessments empower companies to make better choices? First of all, it's like organizational change because in all these companies, uh, what I noticed is there are an environmental department with the people that are very anxious to do real change inside the system, you know, working with the system, uh, within the system, constructing. Mm-hmm. In every enterprise that I work with, I met a very talented person doing that. And so uh, with their entrepreneurship or their enthusiasm, they are able to, you know, to convince uh, managers and directors and invest money in that. That only that thing, only that thing is a very important change, especially in the in the developing world, because here companies are very very conservative and the government regulations are very weak. So you need uh, companies that go ahead, uh, mm-hmm. go beyond. The, the regulations imposed by the government. So that is, that is very important. Also, the consciousness or the awareness uh, of the importance of the provider. And many companies say, okay, we're doing the things okay according to regulations, we are better, but okay, I'm buying this stuff, this uh, raw material from that company from China. I don't know if it's important or not. And what I noticed is that this is eye-opening for many of them. Okay. The impact really lies uh, somewhere else in the chain, not in my part, but I, I can have an impact. More if I am a big company, uh, my, my uh, provider of raw materials would be more conscious of offering me a uh, better material. So that is the impact of the wallet of the big company. So I, I think that is an important uh, issue there. So first of all, the organizational change. And second of all, giving them um, awareness of the whole importance of the importance of the whole change in the impact of the product. What happens mm-hmm. after the selling and what happens before their manufacturing. That is an important issue. Also, I, I work in a, you know, giving a, a lecture to small enterprises in the city of Bogota. The mayor there, uh, the government, the local government there has a program for encouraging small and medium enterprises to be more sustainable and they give price. And the big, big price includes either having a life cycle assessment of the product or a hotspot analysis of the more important part of the, of their value chain. So most of these people didn't know anything about life cycle. Others were starting, but they don't have the the knowledge, but they were very, you know, they were very interested in that. I love that program because it showed me the importance of the relationship of government, of good government intervention, of the importance of having environmental champions inside every enterprise, and the importance of uh, life cycle thinking in a small enterprise, because the problem there is that a life cycle assessment is usually very costly for a small enterprise, you know, you have to pay for databases, that are costly, you have to pay for analysts that are good at it, you have to pay for certification, you have to have a good data system analysis in their enterprise, uh, good information system within their enterprise, and that is not always the case. Mm-hmm. It's important, not only uh, that the big, big companies, of course, they are, they are important because they, they manage the system, as if they decide to buy green raw materials that will have a long impact along the change, along the whole economy. But it's also important that the small enterprises that in Colombia are very important. They have big employers here, uh, for example. They have access to that kind of uh, analysis too, and robust analysis, not just superficial or uh, greenwashing analysis. Uh, yeah, you have to 
get together all the actors in order to make a life cycle impact analysis meaningful and effective. Mm-hmm. And also, like on that note of having so many moving parts to make the actual assessment itself be worthwhile and properly inform people about the impact of their product and services. Um, it, I think that's, that's a really great example of what you said earlier, how like the consumers have to play the demand, the role of being in demand. Uh, the businesses have to provide the solutions and the governments have to encourage. Um, that's a really good example of the government's encouraging people to take action and do the life cycle assessments because I have experience even working in uh, corporate settings, trying to convince leaders to invest in sustainable solutions. And it's not easy. Um, especially, no, especially if you don't have the life cycle assessment done to point to, it's a lot of inference. Like you're, you can say, oh, well, this material that we use is maybe not the best and this is why. But then they're like, well, that's not our company. So they kind of like brush it off. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think being able to increase the accessibility to get life cycle assessments done is really key. Um, I actually, I was curious to know, so you've worked on very specific life cycle assessments, like for specific companies to understand the impact of their products. Um, what is your opinion on um, platforms that will provide generic life cycle assessments for specific materials? I've come across a couple in my research for the foundation because we want to be a resource for people to understand the impacts of their businesses and their products. But without that really specific, like company specific analysis being done, it's kind of hard. So do you think that people need to have the, the assessment done on themselves individually? Or, or is it possible to use these platforms that exist that um, can say, oh, well, this is the life cycle assessment for this material and this material. And then you kind of put it all together yourself. What do you think about that? I think that depends if you have a regional approach to this database. I think it's very important to have these uh, global platforms that reduce uh, time and cost of doing this analysis. That's very important. Also to the first approach to LCA, because you can do a, a streamline analysis, to do a sensitivity, sensibility analysis, and see which materials, which inputs, are, which emissions are an important to curve or have a have an importance in the end result in the uncertainty of which uh, information are uncertainty and data gaps and all of that. So uh, that, of course, is very important. But mm-hmm. at some point, you need to do a very specific analysis. For example, in the construction, in the construction sector, you have certain sustainable labels or certification schemes. That has uh, that have a database built inside them. But if you measure the impact of your materials according to that, you are uh, probably taking decisions that are not very accurate. If you stay at that and do, and don't do a, a deeper analysis, you can have tedious errors. For example, the bricks. I I will put the example of Colombia, my home country in which I work. I work in Switzerland and Colombia. In these two countries are the countries in which my experience are mostly done. In Colombia, for example, the brick industry is very dependent on coal. And mm. uh, you don't have a very uh, industrialized industry, you know, uh, a lot of concrete. You have, you have a lot of construction uh, doing to bricks. And that uh, has a, a large impact in the global uh, results of a building in Colombia because mm-hmm. you have biomass use as fuel, you have coal use as fuel, you have, you have very inefficient systems of manufacturing the bricks. And if you use global databases without this fine distinction, you will have a very, very important uh, differences, like uh, three or four times the emissions a kilogram or per brick. In that in that sense, I think it's very important to have uh, these global platforms that make uh, make you take fast decisions. But if you are serious about making reductions, you have to go deep at some mm-hmm. point. 
That's a really good point. I honestly, because I, I never even considered that part of it before, where it depends not only on like your fuel, your fuel source and your your specific manufacturing process in developing these products. Because I know like in obviously in different places in the world, they're going to have different um, systems to make that happen. So it's a good, I guess you would say then it's a good starting point. And if you're using kind of a, a highly generic product or resource in your manufacturing process, then it's maybe okay to infer. But if you actually want to make the big change, as you said, you really need to do the specific analysis. Yeah. For example, in the construction sector in Canada, probably you have a more standardized and Soviet system. And if you use generic data, you will have less uncertainty in the results. So it will be okay there. But if you are trying to do changes in other parts of the world or if a project is too, too specific, uh, you must go deeper. Uh, it, that is my approach to that. But of course, generic platforms and rapid streamline assessments are very important to, to at least encourage life cycle thinking to at least uh, popularize it better. Also important to develop uh, regional databases, you know, Latin American databases, Asian databases, African databases that are reliable and compatible with uh, European or North American databases to really help the future business, you know. You have to do this legwork that is already done in Europe and in Canada and in the US, but do this legwork in other parts of the world to to really have a meaningful streamlined platforms that to reduce and popularize the, the analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be, that that might be a good like hybrid solution because the reason that I think that those platforms are are potentially really useful, especially for smaller businesses and the entrepreneurs who are going to disrupt um, and force the bigger companies to actually look at themselves and change some stuff. Having those platforms makes it way more accessible. But um, for example, one of the biggest ones that I've looked at for our foundation, um, for our business members to use is based in Europe. And that was my big concern was like, okay, well, that's based on European processes. So maybe if there was... Um, everyone, as you mentioned, like has their own kind of like regional thing. And then depending on yeah. where your products are being manufactured, you use a life cycle assessment from that either country or even continent at this point, because I don't think we have enough data to do it country by country, but um, at least have it as a starting point. And then once you've used those generic life cycle assessments that are more accessible, you can convince business leaders to then invest in doing their own specific like life cycle assessment. It's like a good conversation starter almost. Yeah, I believe that. Okay, cool. Um, so I was also curious based on, I know we're going very deep into life cycle assessments, but I think it's so fascinating. Um, when, so when you've worked with companies to do these types of assessments, um, is it common or do people typically publish that for people to see like their customers? Because a lot of um, climate activists that I know um, and even just individuals inside companies, they want to share the transparency with customers. Um, But have you worked with anyone who actually has published life cycle assessments or do they typically just use it to inform internal decisions? Uh, that depends. Uh, I worked in, a, in, when I was in Europe, I worked for a university that do, that did projects for either in uh, European projects involving universities and companies or directly for, for companies. More, uh, when you do that in a academic project involving enterprise, one of the products is you have to publish that. So that is, that is, that is finally the, uh, and the enterprises put it, the links in their corporate sustainability web pages, or you have a scientific peer review publication. But in, in the other cases, when you work directly with, uh, for example, it was a beverage company that we work with, uh, we were trying to find sustainable sources for, uh, for products for sugar all around the world and to make a decision for them uh, and to inform the decisions in raw uh, raw material acquired. 
So that uh, remains inside the, the, the company, you know. But if you are a consultant and if the company hires you to do the, the life cycle assessment, so usually it's, it's the company to start a project. You know, uh, at least in my in my experience with companies, it's okay. They, uh, I I want to start to do that. Let's do the certification later. For example, I work for a for a oil and gas company here in Latin America, and uh, and it was their decision. Well, we are start to do water footprint for our product. I will let you work in these cases. Probably the other cases uh, we will work. From ourselves to see how we are doing, but these are the 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 child, the the star child, you know, the the good mm -hmm. boy. Uh, I want to show you. So do the work here. Uh, uh, you go, you go the work there. You you show the results. You teach them how to do it well. They start to manage the methodology for their own needs in their company. And they will do it again internally for the other parts or for the other boys, for the other children that probably are not that good, you know. And it's in their, it will be the final decision, their final decision to publish or not this data. If their intention is transparency and, and showing how good they are and they are really invested in that, uh, they will publish all and they will be open to the book. If their intention is to know how to improve themselves, they will lose the, the tool to do that, but they would probably not be publicizing that. They will be just learning. So it's almost like, so the first one, it needs to be kind of, I guess, initiated by the company themselves, just out of the goodness of their own hearts to know where they're at. And then they publish it when they yeah. have something to brag about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's kind of an unsatisfying, you know, if, if you have uh, sustainability at heart, it's kind of heartbreaking. It's kind of, you you can get cynic about it, yeah. but let's not do that. Mm -hmm. uh, if there are small steps to the writing. At least they are thinking about it. At least at least they are starting to think about it. Uh, changes and systemic changes are not easy. You have to do a first step, and these are first steps. So you have to work with that. We cannot avoid the system uh, in which we are working. You know, right. you have to work with the activities, you, you have to work with the government, uh, even if you are not in, the, in your personal views, you are not completely agree with the way, with the way uh, they are doing things. But you, it's the only, it's the only way out. You cannot be antagonizing, you, you must come back, convince and you work, and you must work with the productive forces in order to change it. Change mm -hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, even on that note, like if they're going to want, if they want to make a decision about their sustainability practices, or if they want to do something, the first step is to understand the data first. Like you can't go in wanting to get something out of it. You have to know what you're working with before you can improve yeah. it. So absolutely. There's a whole, a whole benefit to that. And honestly, I'm surprised that oil and gas companies, I know they're actually um, some of the most... I guess, invested in doing those types of assessments to understand their impact because it is an inherently um, polluting, obviously, industry. Um, so yeah. it's really good to know that they're, they're doing it in Colombia as well and um, actually investing the time and money into doing those, um, those really in-depth assessments that maybe would be easier to avoid and they could have just been generic in their studies as well. Um, but we like to joke about how it's just a big, difficult problem. Um, but like on the note, actually, of energy stuff, because I know um, you've worked with biorefineries. And for those who aren't aware, biorefineries are what turn biological materials into energy, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. I did a quick Google search because I'm not, I'm not really into the energy space at all. Um, personally, like I, I don't have a lot of knowledge. I think it's fascinating, but I don't know a lot about it. Um, so knowing that like oil and gas companies are doing these assessments and trying to figure out um, ways to, to do better and improve their practices. Um, I'm curious to know 
just either based on your experience or your opinion based on conversations that you've had with people. Um, do you think that going renewable and finding alternatives to green energy, do you think there is enough momentum in there? Um, or do you find that um, it might be a lot of, um, at least in Canada, I can I feel like this is happening. I don't know for fact. Um, but I feel like a lot of oil and gas companies are putting a lot of effort and money into financing ways to make their practices that are inherently extractive, like less bad instead of investing in something that is actually just a good alternative. So I'm curious to know like your perspective on that transition. Like what do you think is going to work? What do you think isn't going to work? What do you think their motivations are? Um, I just want to get your take on the transition to, to renewable energy sources. I think uh, most oil and gas companies are secretly very concerned and, and they're trying to to make research value. They will not make them public. There, there's a need. There's an obvious need to change our or to transition to a renewable uh, source of energy and materials uh, because a lot of our materials are also fossil-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of interest uh, in, in that, uh, I know for sure. Uh, but you know, you always need the carrot and the, and the whip. I don't know. We have that uh, saying in Spanish. I don't know if it works in English. But you have to offer something good, but also offer some restrictions to them. So we need also strong government and governments that are strong uh, against oil and gas, certain oil and gas industries, but we must be realistic. Energy transitions are slow. Uh, first, probably we'll have to transition to gas before it, before any renewable transition is made. But we have to work fast. And in order to work fast, we need also government involved on that and citizens involved on that. As we say at the beginning, we, we need we need to work from all sources. You have to consume better energy and better materials if you can. If you are a citizen, a consumer, an individual consumer, but also if you are an enterprise. You have better laws. You have to reduce uh, subsidies to polluting energy with intelligence. You know? uh, we, don't, we don't need to crush the economy uh, <laughs> by doing a sudden change. But we must do it a rapid and a decision. Uh, and these decisions uh, must be taken apart of the party company. You know, we, we don't need this up and down or this uh, bipolar uh, approach to that. We need a constant state-based um, approach uh, taken apart from politics. We need a decision right now to, to be better. Having said that, uh, you also need good indicators to do the change. You need science-based indicators mm. to do the change because there are many aspects of that. For example, I, I work in biorefineries, and you can say that, okay, we, we can do ethanol from corn, and that will save the world. That is proven. That is a bad, bad decision. We're encouraging very inefficient way of working. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, probably we need not to do the fuels and the material, the plastic from the sugar in the, in the corn, but better do it uh, using the corn stubble, you know, the residual, the agricultural residual of that. Oh, that's okay. That, that will be, that will improve uh, the, that will uh, improve the fuel matrix of the world without harming uh, the food supply. But okay. If you remove all the materials from the, from the uh, agricultural refuse from the land, you will deprive the soil, you know? Mm-hmm. And also you are uh, financing monoculture, and that is bad also. And right. always, and you are taking into account only CO2 emissions, but what about eutrophication, contamination of uh, water sources, uh, pesticides? So in, re- in reality, you need to think very clear about these decisions because these are long-term decisions and you must be well informed to take them. In that sense, life cycle analysis and 
material flow analysis and all science-based inquiries about uh, the energy transition are uh, totally needed. And again, uh, the political the political aspects of it must be removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing with a lot of decisions. Like, I find that in the past, it seems like a lot of environmental or even business decisions have been based in politics and in what they think people want or what people think that they want without actually looking about looking into the life cycle or the or the bigger impact that specific products have on the environment i'm even reading like talking about like biofuels um i'm reading a life cycle assessments textbook because i'm very nerdy and um (laughs) it was saying something like uh, the actual impact when you think from the very, very beginning to having biofuel created um, at the time of the life cycle assessment, I mean, technology might have changed by now, but when they did the initial assessment, they found that biofuel um, ended up taking more resources, like what you mentioned, like the pesticides and like water even, and all the agriculture implications of using mm-hmm. like newly um, grown materials for biofuels. Cause I know it's a different story if you were to use like waste material. Um, but if you were to use biofuels from like in that sense, like still creating new stuff, um, it ends up being worse for the environment than traditional fuel. Um, which I thought like that blew my mind because at the time everyone was being like, Oh, this is the best thing. Like this is so environmentally friendly. Um, and it honestly, it makes me think about the whole conversation around PLA right now or bio um, plastics where it's the same problem because the production method is more resource intensive than if you were to just use like recycled plastics, say, or even virgin plastics in some cases. And the disposal side of things still aren't great. So um, uh-huh. it, it, it's just, it's interesting that you would have brought that up too, because um, that's the thing. People are always making these um, decisions based off like the new shiny toy almost versus mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. looking at the whole life cycle to determine if it's better or if it's not. Um, so I guess with that, um, I'm curious to know, like, do you have, I mean, your work with biorefineries, how efficient are they? Like, I'm just curious because I don't know anything about them. Um, but like, how efficient would it be? How much, um, material do you need to produce energy? Like, what does that process look like? Can you lay it out for us? Okay. Let's define biorefineries. It's like taking biomass, either fuel or either electricity or plastic. And let's take as an example, uh, like the sugar cane industry. You can make sugar and extract the juice uh, from the cane and use the molasses to do the, the, the ethanol and the pure juice uh, to do the sugar. And then use the bagasse from the cane, uh, the fibrous residue from the extraction of the juice to do electricity. And in the end, there will be an energy surplus that will be sold to the electrical grid and will replace uh, whatever the energy matrix matrix of the country will be, you know. If you are based in China, uh, you will be replacing coal mostly. And if you are in Brazil or in Colombia or any other Latin American country that produces sugarcane, you will be replacing hydro energy. So the impact regarding CO2 would be not so great. Uh, and that could be a way to do that. But you can also use the bagasse, the previous vessel, uh, to produce more biofuel with uh, enhanced enzymatic fermentation techniques that will allow to extract the, the, cell, the ethanol from the cellulose that is in the fiber of the bagasse. Uh, and then there will be a leaking residue that you could be used to produce electricity that will also replace whatever is the energy matrix of the whole system or do some products uh, about the from the leaking in that residue. So you, will, you could have a, a very big portfolio based on transforming the sugar that is on the biomass. You can do ethanol, you can do, you could do all, uh, plastic, PLA, you could, PHA, uh, are a lot of, uh, of plastics, of bioplastics that could be 
Some of them will be uh, recyclable, easily recyclable or easily degradable. Some of them would be as problematic fossil-based plastics. So the greater the diversity of the portfolio, the biorefinery, the greater and the more complex are the, the implications. And you need robust methods to, to take that decision, you know. If you are working uh, on the assumption that the most important thing is, is reducing carbon emissions, probably it's a good idea to do ethanol or plastics from the pilot residue of the sugar-producing uh, industry, you know. You can produce sugar and you can produce ethanol and plastics from the field of residue. You have the technology on point. And it will be, in the end, I think, uh, a good thing regarding uh, CO2 emissions. But if you take into account other impacts of that uh, change, like impacts to water, uh, impacts to soil, uh, the inherent impact of monoculture, uh, probably the system is not that easy. Mm-hmm. That's that is such a uh, sustainability answer, which it makes a lot of sense because everything is kind of like a gray area in sustainability. It's like, well, it's good for this, and maybe some other things not so much. But I think in the case of biorefineries, like this is where it makes sense to maybe source waste um, as the input for biorefineries. So, like if you're talking about the sugar example, like if that was happening anyways, then you might as well use the biorefinery to get as much out of the material as possible. But I guess what you're saying is like, yeah, you're not going to be growing or sourcing like net new plants just to put it into this biorefinery just for the cake, for the, for the, the fun of it. (laughs) Um, That's a great summary of my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. No, I like that. In the paper and the, in the pulp and paper industry also. We have not made the systemic change to, to get away uh, with paper. So it's an industry that will stay there uh, for a long time. Uh, it's probably waning, but they're trying to transform right now. They are trying to find ways to, to transform the lignin residue of the paper production into products. So they are there. They're essential uh, in the moment, but they can be better. Uh, they can improve their business, even transform the, their business into another. Uh, and that is great. That mm-hmm. is great for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing with circular economy. I always kind of, I'm always preaching circular economy to everybody because it's not necessarily that you have to like change your entire um, business model or you have to change everything that you're doing, like your processes and everything like that. But all it is is a matter of figuring out other ways to use the the resources that you're already using. Like in this case, like if you can make energy out of it and if you can make all these other things out of what would otherwise be waste then do it because then like, as you said, like you can create other opportunities, you can create additional revenue streams. Um, you can change your business kind of incrementally while also being really sustainable in the process. Um, so I think that is such a good, um, I guess, perspective on not just like biorefineries and using natural materials, but then even in circular economy in general, it's just how can you maximize everything that you're already doing um, and make sure that nothing goes to waste. Um, So I think we're almost um, at time, but I just wanted to say um, as kind of a last uh, question or a last discussion point um, is, are there any kind of key takeaways or, um, or kind of dreams of yours that would, uh, would need to happen in order to make uh, a green recovery or some sort of um, green economy happen? Like what would be your, your main focus or your main ask of, of everybody? Uh, I can repeat something that I say at the beginning. We must need to be better in every aspect of our existence in, the, in this planet. Uh, as citizens, we must choose the politicians that are more clean, that have more clean hands and uh, more independent views regarding the energy transition. As uh, citizens, we must 
try to engage more in community outreach, whatever it means. You know, it, it can be uh, your, your movie club, your box club, uh, whatever thing you do, the better the, the community at your neighbor house is, is doing. Uh, try not to uh, throw that can into the street. You uh, can be responsible, uh, all the sort of things. Uh, uh, trying to, as a consumer, you have to exercise your wallet power and try to make the right decisions within your ability. If you are a working class people, you don't have many options. You have to survive. Don't chastise you about it. But if you have a little more means, you have to try to the best decisions in your, in your uh, consumption. As a entrepreneur, uh, uh, you have to be fair. You have to think that uh, profit is not uh, the main reason to do an enterprise, to start up a company. Uh, you start up a company to make an impact. So be mm-hmm. fair when you're working. Uh, think uh, ahead and try to imagine a way in which you give ownership and independence to the workers uh, if they and if they are for it. If you are a worker, do you work well and, uh, and try to be mindful in doing your work. Uh, a father, uh, try to educate your children in, in love for for your neighbor in, uh, in responsibility, in love for the planet your your kids are living on. And don't chastise you very much. Uh, don't don't do this an anxiety thing. You have to be mindful. Uh, also, that there is a system in place that has its pros, and you have to work with it in the best way you have. Uh, and for me, that is the solution, uh, multi-level <laughs> solution. <laughs> that's great, and I think that's a great kind of note to leave it off on. Everyone has a role to play in ways that they can help kind of move the green economy forward. Um, so I really appreciate your time coming to chat with us today. Um, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Uh, thank you, Erin. And uh, thank you for having me there. And um, um, have a good day. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Inner Circle. If you'd like to learn more about the foundation, you can visit our website at impactzero.ca. You can also find us on Instagram at impactzero.ca and as well on LinkedIn, Impact Zero Foundation. Thanks again for hanging out with us today and we'll see you next week.